Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? Hey, James. I'm doing very well, thanks. So today our guest is none other than Dr. Eric Lacks. Eric is a professor, researcher, and pioneer in the study of mindfulness and health. He is a director of the Mindfulness Center at Brown University and the author of The Mindful College Student, which came out this year. Eric, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, really nice to be here with you both. And I've been enjoying listening to your podcast and really appreciate the work that you're doing and spreading it around the world. Oh, it's nice. What a nice thing to say. What a, what a, what a great way to start. <laughs> well, so we were speaking off air just briefly about the fact that it's the new school year, the new college year, the new university year. And that's contextual because I want to spend a little bit of today talking about young adolescents. I heard a presentation you gave where you spoke about how young to youngish adults are dying what you've described as deaths of despair. Now, stress levels are going up, and the younger you are, the more stressed you are, very roughly speaking. And I wanted to ask you, what's going on? Yeah, it's a challenging time to be a young adult. And uh, you know, we've been running some, some analyses in nationally representative data from like death certificates and stuff, and seeing that since 2009, mortality in young adults has gone up about 40%. And that trend was happening before COVID. And a lot of it is driven by what we call like deaths of despair, like suicide, overdose, accidents, wow. um, homicide. And so, you know, what is what is driving that in the U.S.? And, you know, if we look at mental health statistics for the last 30 years or so, we've been seeing increases, steady increases before COVID, also after COVID, increases in anxiety and depression and, and about... Seven years or so ago, a nationally representative study that tracks the stress levels of people in the United States for the first time in recorded history, the stress of young adults, like actually of adolescents, was higher than that of adults. So we're at a, at a time in history where folks are stressed and mental health is a real challenge, and that's also translating into mortality rates and stuff too. I was just going to say it's uncanny, you know, in every classroom that I'm in where I'm teaching anything on anxiety or resilience techniques, and I say, can we just get a show of hands just for solidarity? Who here has struggled with some sort of anxiety disorder? And I don't mean just feels anxious sometimes, but really has has had a real challenge with anxiety. I mean, it's it's either the entire room or the, most of the room that put up their hands. Most people, it seems in my life right now, identify as somebody who has some struggles with anxiety sometime in their life. Yeah. And, it, and it's this funny thing where it's like, it's this challenge. And it's also like, in some ways, a a really cool time to be a young adult in that, you know, we're living twice as long now as we did just a hundred years ago. So even if we're making like wow. the right mess of our lives right now, we got twice as long to like sort of out <laughs> you're as getting, we used to. You're getting twice the mess yeah. anyway. <laughs> and it's also, you know, I love teaching mindfulness to young adults and, and it's also an interesting time like physiologically where the brain is maturing, like the, pre the prefrontal cortex is actually maturing in the mid twenties. So it's a real chance to work with the brain right when it's starting to really get skills of like logic and reason and being able to connect itself to all the other regions of the brain as well. 
So then the question is, why is it that the on the paper it's a good time to be a young person? Why is that not translating into people's lived experiences? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as I was writing that book, The Mindful College Student, I interviewed a couple dozen young adults, and I've had hundreds go through my mindfulness-based college program and the courses that I teach. And so things that they talk about, you know, some are related to, you know, financial stress, for example. So college tuition has been outpacing inflation for decades. Uh, Housing costs have been outpacing inflation for for decades. And then this kind of gig economy and, and lack of kind of stable jobs a lot of the time create quite a bit of economic stress that students are feeling. Social media and sort of the drive of connection to screens and how to sort out their relationship with that and also the implications of it around, say, body image or how they may compare their everyday experience to people's best days that often show up on social media and what yeah. that means for them. Yeah. You know, so those are some of, the, some of the big ones, for example. The interesting thing around like every single one of those, including the college and the housing, etc., is that they all emerged out of kind of cool things. Like social media by itself in the vacuum is it's great, like more room for connection. If house prices or education are going up to be very reductionist, it means there's a demand and there's education available. And But it's so interesting that like good things without proper regulation, crafting, end up being, as you've described, some of the prime reasons young people are stressed. Yeah. So a crucial detail here is, as we're talking about youngish people, mm-hmm your prefrontal cortex matures in your mid-twenties. Can you explain what a prefrontal cortex is, what it is to mature, and why that matters? Sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's like the prefrontal cortex is the area that's responsible for, like, logic and reason. It's kind of near your frontal lobe, like, kind of towards the front of your brain. And so, you know, I'm not a a neuroscientist. I'm a physiologist, but not necessarily a neuroscientist. But it's, it's an area that really helps with say if a stress reaction happens, it might be hitting like our limbic system or our amygdala, like the fight or flight or freeze response. But as we get older, we start to get more connections and more development with that prefrontal cortex where there's logic and reasons so that we can say, yeah, I'm feeling stressed or yeah, there's this thing that's happening that I really want to do. Maybe it's not so good for my well-being. Oh, look, my prefrontal cortex that tells me more about logic and reason is actually more connected to my amygdala or my reptilian brain, and they can start to talk with each other more. And, you know, in the neuroscience of, of mindfulness and meditation, one of the discoveries I found most interesting is showing increased connectivity between different regions of the brain. And so can we harness our entire wisdom? You know, like one of the definitions of mindfulness is, you know, around remembering. And, and it's almost like mindfulness is like an arrow that um, brings our wisdom into the present moment. Can we remember to bring all the wisdom wherever we got it from, whether it's from our parents or wise people in our lives or something we've read or whatever it is, can we bring it into this moment? And having that prefrontal cortex there (laughs) that helps with the logic and reason can help us bring our wisdom right here, right now, because this is the only moment that we ever have. I love that. You know, it's one of the things that I like about using science as the basis for thinking through some of these things. It just sounds, I think as soon as you say that out loud, you say, look, your brain's growing and there's some like really important growth periods. And by the way, we can actually train in a certain way to help that moment along and help it like have its full maturity. I don't know how anybody says, oh, that does, that sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, you can take it straight out of, you can take it out of the religious context in a way. You can just say, look, you've got a growing brain. Here's some skills that you can use. 
and these skills will help that period support you. I mean, I'm, I, I'm all right. I've already drank the Kool-Aid, but if I hadn't, I, I would have definitely just even hearing that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It can even be interesting to see for ourselves, you know, for those of us who maybe are past that mid twenties age or those that are entering, you know, I had a friend when I was in college, he was talked about like the Saturn return, which I guess Saturn comes to the same place in the universe as when you were born, when you're 26. And I was like, that sounds like fluff. <laughs> and it was like right when I turned 26 that I finally started like taking control over my life. And I felt like I became like a man and like, you know, and, and I was like, wow, that Saturn return thing. Oh my God. And who knows? Like, I, I don't know, but I do know the prefrontal cortex matures right around yeah, then. Right, right. And so yeah. I certainly experienced the benefits of that personally. And around that time in my life too, where I really noticed, you know, around that age that I was like, okay, yeah, I just, what do I want to do with my life and, and how can I build the life of my dreams and yeah. what is that dream in the first place? And I find mindfulness can help us come to understand our be ourselves better, come to know who we really are yeah. and look at what's most important for the world and how we can meet that demand, leveraging our skills that we already naturally have. And it's interesting because so I'm 25, I'm 26, and my sat Saturn's coming Welcome around to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Watch Hold out, on. man. It's, uh, yeah. But it is, it is interesting because the difference between 22, and I'm speaking just for myself, but yeah. kind of my friends as well, and 25 is big. Like the amount of stability that's in your life, not necessarily, but you've sort of, you've come out of being 18 and doing all that stuff. 25, 26, I understand, I'm not saying it's linked to Saturn per se, but I do understand, I do understand there's a point to 26 being a little bit more settled. And yeah. one of the reasons quite possibly that happens is kind of the maturing of your prefrontal context. As you say, decision-making comes online just a little bit more, just a little bit mind, but yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. And I want to know, is that flexibility in the prefrontal co cortex that exists from zero to 26. Does that represent something of an opportunity when it comes to mindfulness and developing brain training? Such so you know, it's a tricky time. It's like, um, you know, when my kids, I have twins, twin daughters, and when they were six months old, we started up this mindfulness group for families. And so we offered programs for everyone together. You know, we might be singing songs or like, you know, inviting a bell that would we'd each get a chance to ring the bell and we'd all listen to it and might share nice. a children's story that would have an adult lesson. And then, then we'd split off into different groups and the kids would have kid programs and the adults would have adult programs so that they really do something that's developmentally right for them. And then we come back together and like I've, I've trained thousands of people in mindfulness meditation and the most stressed I've ever been training someone in mindfulness is the kids because <laughs> <laughs> They're so developmentally different. Like it was just whoever showed up anywhere from like basically two to 14. So when the brain is developing, I've often heard of it as it's kind of like you're building a house and you start with the foundation, which is like, you know, the reptilian brain and then start building up. But you, you got to remember kids and adolescents and stuff that, you know, the top part of the brain isn't, isn't built yet. <laughs> and so if we're going to work with mindfulness training, when is right to offer it and how? And so we're seeing, say, results from the Myriad project, like in the UK, that provided mindfulness training in school settings to, I think it was 12 to 14-year-olds, somewhere around there, maybe it was 10 to 14, had kind of mixed, mixed results. For me, I'm often thinking of, like, how to do it in the right way at the right time. 
And so it's one of the reasons why I love working with young adults because the prefrontal cortex in the brain is like maturing, but it's also kind of plastic. And it's at the stage that they can really take it on. Especially at college where you're, you, you really are stepping into a new kind of life in college, aren't you? I mean, you're already stepping into a lot of volatility, just leaving your primary home. Yes. Um, you're, you're kind of open to being bendy and a bit flexible when you get into college, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's like they call it like a sensitive time in the life course where, you know, people are often leaving home, you know, finishing high school or whatever it is, moving on to the next days, starting new romantic relationships and just coming to figure out who they are. And that mindfulness training can help provide a framework and a scaffolding through which to figure that out, to be able to differentiate themselves from their parents, but still leverage the wisdom that they've learned from their parents and to create a community of each other that's actually often a pretty healthy kind of community. Like mindfulness is kind of a cool thing right now. And I find that a lot of the students that I teach form some social networks because they're into this stuff, but it's a pretty healthy way to connect with others. Eric, can I ask like, I mean, what have you found just in your own experience does work for people around this age to be developing some of these skills? Or, you know, we were just saying there's a kind of, you're always thinking about optimizing how to deliver these things and how they might be taken up. Where are you right now for thinking about around this age range of college starting to develop some of these skills and abilities? Is there any, any things that have really, that seem obvious for you now with all of your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I developed this program called Mindfulness-Based College that was grounded in mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's like an evidence-based program that's been around for over 40 years. But we adapted it to connect more with young adults concerns and interests so that everyone in there is a young adult. Right. And then we bring in more topics, particularly related to like physical health, like young adults' relationship with their diet, with physical activity, alcohol, substance use, with social media. We also have more kind of peer-to-peer -peer interactions because their peers are so important to them at that phase. And there's a lot of appreciation around that. So we ran that through a randomized controlled trial that was published in the journal Psychosomatic Medicine in 2021, like last year, and showed you know pretty nice statistically significant improvements in depression symptoms and stress and sleep quality, and also in like sedentary activity, mm. like um, the amount of time that people were spent in sedentary activities, yep. and also overall well-being. So that's been pretty inspiring to see. Also, I, I teach a course called Meditation, Mindfulness, and Health at Brown, and uh, we're just in the second week of it now. It's a very popular course. I cap it at 120 students and it fills up in minutes. And so that gives the students a chance to both learn the practice of mindfulness. They get kind of a boiled down kind of mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based college program. But then they also learn about the science of mindfulness. So all the methods around study design and measurement and really look at the state of the evidence on the impacts of mindfulness on various different health outcomes like obesity or anxiety or depression or blood pressure or how to adapt it to different racial and cultural groups right. and so they get the credit for that and they learn the science of it so they get sort of an objective view of how it works and if it works and then they get to try it out for themselves as well that's been a powerful combo wow do you find that students who take your courses or people who are reading your books are running into issues that are new fundamentally because of things like social media, money stresses, or are these different versions of the things that have been plaguing the mental health of people that age for the last 500 years? I mean, I think suffering isn't new, but what causes the suffering of 
a population at any moment in time is if we look at the causes of suffering you know from a mindfulness framework or some of the buddhist underpinnings they talk a lot about the causes of suffering being attachment or craving or aversion like not wanting something to be the way it is or ignorance so if we look at it around say social media use we can think of say craving or attachment to whether people like our posts or not or you know how we're viewed how many people follow us you know so sometimes we can boil it down to some of the fundamental causes of suffering which are attachment aversion and ignorance but at the same time you know social media is pretty new and it's this fancy flashy little thing that <laughs> our parents didn't really sort out and their parents didn't really sort out so it's just like with any tool that comes up in society, we need to figure out how to use that tool well. And so how can we use social media well? Because it, it's an amazing tool in so many ways, but we can get caught. And mindfulness can help us know when we're getting caught. There's definitely an element of generational luck here. You know, each generation has its perks and pitfalls. But I know friends of mine or younger siblings who are two, three, four years younger than me are genuinely of a different generation and their mental health and their relationship with social media is kind of almost by paradigm different because what they've grown up with is totally different to what I've grown up with, which is bizarre to talk about in the context of three years. But mm -hmm. it makes the point. The needs of college students, the needs of adolescents are actually changing rapidly and one would presume quicker and quicker, which poses a practical problem for courses, for books, for looking after young people. How do we catch the new nuances of what we need to provide to be supportive. Yeah, I think one approach is to be training the next generation in mindfulness practices and then they become the teachers and they get to see how it applies to their digital landscape or their financial landscape or their job landscape because they're the experts because they're the ones living it. But then also for me, I try to really connect with young adults and listen to them and understand and to think of it as like, you know, I learn as much from them as they learn from me. And so then if we're in it together and we're connected, then the flow of ideas can go through the generations, but not in a like top down kind of way, just as a mutually respectful with lots of curiosity kind of way. Cause it's, you know, like my kids, they're 12 and they don't really do much in the way of games and stuff, or, but they were doing this it's this app that basically is like Pictionary where you like draw pictures and you kind of guess what the picture is. And like they're playing with kids from like India, like all over the world. And like, and then they're chatting with them and they're getting some neat little snippets of people from other cultures. Wow. And like, how cool is that? You know? <laughs> so I'm trying, you know, even as a father to like be like, wow, that's just amazing that you get to do this. And how's it going? Are you, is it making you feel happier or less happy? <laughs> yeah. And to, you know, support them with mindfulness practices to like not get caught in that and make sure that they're taking care of their bodies and the minds with healthy eating and physical activity and other forms of social engagement with their family or friends. And, but we give them some time on that because it's, there's pretty amazing things that can be done. Wow. You know, they haven't, they hadn't seen their grandparents for two and a half years mm. because of COVID, but we had Zoom and we had video conferencing and that really helped them with missing their grandparents and they finally got to see them in person this summer and it was wonderful and in person was wonderful but boy if we hadn't had video conferencing during zoom it would have been even harder for the grandkids and grandparent relationship and so i want to move this briefly to early life trauma 
or early life adversity. I'm interested to start in the differences between early life trauma or adversity and trauma and adversity experienced later in life, and whether there's anything fundamentally different going on. I don't know if you've read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, but it, it really um, addresses it, this kind of thing in a beautiful way. I'm actually reading it right now. I lead a network funded by the National Institutes of Health called the Reversibility Network, and it's looking to support research on how to reverse the effects of early life adversity in midlife. We've been looking at you know mindfulness programs as one option, but also say physical activity as another, and psychological therapy can be another approach. You know, I think if we think of trauma early on in life, that can happen before the brain is is fully developed and the body is fully developed. And there can be real power dynamics there as well, so that responses can be made to that trauma where kids are just doing the best they can to figure out how to be well. And decisions can be made that can influence their well-being that they sometimes don't even know they made. And it can get pretty deeply wired because the brain's just getting going with getting developed. In adulthood, when trauma happens, it can be in a more, you know, you might've had some of those neural networks already developed so that if the trauma happens, it can be really difficult and damaging, but you've got the full brain there to be able to make sense of it and to recover. And not to say one is harder than the other, but that's where I see, you know, some of the differences kind of from a physiological level come about and also Sometimes with the childhood trauma, they might not even know that it happened because it just happened so early in life and stuff. But it's it's influenced the way that they are now. That's that's an interesting detail, right? Like once you're older, you can contextualize things that happen to you and you can talk about them and you kind of have a narrative to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas something that happens earlier before you're kind of at the point where you're putting together conscious narratives, I mean, that just gets built into the system by the sounds of things. And then the reversibility network, let's talk about it. What's the way to start recovering? Yeah, my colleague Xu Feng Sun, who's a professor at Brown University, published a review on this topic just last year. And I'm on the authorship too, but she really led. You know, looking at mindfulness as an approach, you know, say with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, there's been a couple studies now, one published in The Lancet by Willem Kuyken at uh, Oxford University, he's the lead author, and uh, found that those who were exposed to childhood abuse had bigger impacts of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy on depression than people who weren't exposed to childhood abuse, for example. And uh, there's this idea, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Zen master, talks about using mindfulness meditation to heal the past in the present moment so that it can help us kind of take a step back from, say, our emotions or our thoughts and to care for them, you know, almost like a parent would a crying child. And, and they're just there. They're there for a reason. And you know, and there's lots of causes and conditions that went into that event that happened. And can we care, care for the emotions that arise? And and then after time, kind of like how a child will settle when we're there with them, we can start to look at the roots of, of what maybe caused that, but really offer lots of self-kindness and respect our boundaries so that if we're in a comfort zone or like um, a growth zone, you know, there might be some stress there looking at the roots, but we're not overwhelmed, it's okay, and we can continue. But if we get overwhelmed, we might want to, you know, say, distract to something healthy, like just going for a walk. Or David Trelevin wrote a really beautiful book called Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness that really looks at how to consider trauma history when we're working with mindfulness practices. And so if we do it gently and with skill, and preferably with the, with the skilled teacher, 
it can help us start to take a step back from those strong emotions and thoughts and be able to look at the roots. And once we understand the roots, often a skillful path for healing appears. I love that right there. And just to hit the note one more time, I think oftentimes when we think about the benefits of mindfulness for these things, we think that it's mostly the non-judgment, but that's actually only half of the story and maybe not even half of the story. The other half of this story is investigating the roots and coming to a better understanding. I've just heard that in this conversation we're having right now. Like you said, like as an adult, we've got fully fleshed out neural networks. We have much more capacity to be able to digest and understand the sort of things. Well, hopefully we have a bigger capacity to understand and digest the sorts of things that happen to us. But when you're younger, you don't have the same capacity to understand. And I think that understanding is so crucial for what ends up getting in and counting as trauma and what doesn't. Oftentimes, just really understanding how something is and understanding our own relationship to it, that takes a lot of the teeth out of a lot of the sort of dangerous experiences that we go through in a lifetime. So I just I just love to hear you say it here, you know, that the mindfulness element here is not just dispassion is not just non-judgmental perception, but it's non-judgmental perception so that you can get close enough to the thing so that maybe you can learn something about the thing in a caring and considered way and that it might be the learning that helps. And does that sort of track with your with your feelings here as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the neat things with the reversibility network is, you know, looking into the measurement of adversity too, because there's lots of different kinds. Yeah. So two big categories of adversity. One is kind of like abuse and the other one is like neglect. Mm. So like actively disrupting or staying back while you're being disrupted. You either don't feel supported or you're actively being damaged. Yeah, that does seem like two big categories. And so there's like Katie McLaughlin, I think is her last name. Some of her colleagues have like really measured the physiology of this and stuff too. So, and we've, we're just running some analyses right now in our mindfulness-based blood pressure reduction study where we measured these two domains. And so what we're seeing so far, again, this is unpublished and hasn't been peer reviewed yet, and we're still running the analyses. So take this with a grain of salt, but we're finding that for those who are exposed to abuse, we're seeing the stress-related pathways, like say the mindfulness impacts on stress being particularly pronounced. And on those who experience neglect, we're seeing more impact like through dietary behaviors and stuff too. So when you can think of folks who had neglect during childhood and they might not have received enough, including potentially enough food, for example, too. And so that they might be responding in ways to just get enough, uh, whatever it is that can translate into adult. They find that, you know, for kids that were low birth weight or like who went through a famine, prenatally, like when they're in their mom's wombs, they're more likely to be obese in adulthood. And so there's can be these kind of set points to say, just, you know, make sure you're getting enough food and that sometimes we can overcompensate. So it's been interesting to kind of see the pathways come out. I love this, like starting to find the family members, family members of suffering, and then start thinking about how they reverse in the myriad ways, and then interlocking that with the sort of skills and abilities that tend to be cultivated in mindfulness type vehicles. It's great. Wow. Mm, thanks. And it's interesting that trauma is stored in the way that it's stored, right? So you'll associate hyper-focus on the breath as, oh my God, the traumatic event has become relevant in front of mind again. And when you consider the trauma can be psychological, physical, and meditation is some combination of both, of course, mm. it makes it really obvious you need to be trauma sensitive because meditation is taking quite a hard look at the two, the two, the body and the mind. And lo and behold, that's trauma happen. Yeah. The body and the mind. 
and me and Mark speak often, it's probably the thing we come back to the most as a theme, is I think everyone who gets into meditation has either themselves or knows people who have gone in with a certain type A energy, a certain, it could be the gym, but it's meditation. It's like, let's go. Mm-hmm. And conversations like this just make that point again around meditation is slightly too subtle a game. It's too close to the bone. We're really being focusing on our bodies and our minds to approach it that way. And this conversation around trauma is making that point again. Yeah, it's sort of like causes of suffering or attachment, aversion, and ignorance. So if you go in with attachment to an outcome, like I'm going to be an awesome meditator or some kind of craving or grasping towards that future thing that we imagine that isn't actually here right now, you know, the world's going to teach us some lessons around how that goes. (laughs) And then sometimes if we just, we just be, we just are, then suddenly those things kind of fall away and they're important and we find a path through. If someone's listening, who's tried something vaguely like trauma-sensitive meditation before, but is still thinking, shit, that's too scary. What is, if it does exist, in your mind, like a fairly safe bet for like a entry-level trauma-sensitive form of meditation? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so one thing is, is the evidence is still emerging like around adverse events and stuff, but my feeling on it, and I still want to see the evidence get stronger, is that meditation probably isn't for everyone. And so if we're feeling like it's not a good time to meditate, to trust our wisdom around that, because there's many paths to health and happiness. And sometimes we might want to start with, you know, a talk therapy, for example, or some kind of somatic work. And if we feel like our body and our mind are telling us like, let's try meditation, working with a skilled teacher, I find can be really good, especially if we have some kind of trauma sensitivity or or past. And so if you can find a skilled teacher online or in your community to work with them bit by bit, sometimes it's a therapist that uses like an approach like acceptance and commitment therapy, for example, is like a pretty strong evidence, mindfulness informed approach. So those might be ways through or dialectical behavior therapy is also pretty trauma sensitive that can be used in clinical settings. And if you want to just try something that's like trauma sensitive, you know, Willoughby Britton's done some research showing that probably focused attention meditation is better than like what we call open monitoring at the beginning for people that have like high levels of stress or depression or anxiety. So that is finding an anchor point that's a benefit and working with that. My meditations that I offer online are trauma sensitive and I have focused attention ones that are that use those alternate anchor points. So if you just Google my name and meditation, I'm on all the major platforms, whether it's, you know, Spotify or iTunes or YouTube or Insight Timer. So you're welcome to do that. No pressure. But but another piece is just finding a teacher that's a good fit for you. And I may or may not be that fit. And there's there's others. Also at the Mindfulness Center, we have just about daily free mindfulness meditations taught by certified teachers that are trained in trauma sensitivity. So if you just go to brown.edu slash mindfulness center and click on our programs, you can see our daily programs that are um, available free and online. Amazing. Eric, where can everybody find you online? I do have a website, ericlokesphd.com. That's maybe a good starting place to kind of get a sense of what I'm up to. My Twitter handle's at Eric B. Lokes. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. 
So those are some of the pathways. If you want to listen to my meditations, I find Insight Timer app seems to be a particularly good platform, but I'm on a lot of different ones. Eric, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, really, uh, you ask great questions and also both have a lot of knowledge and wisdom in this area too. So it was a pleasure to connect with both of you and thanks for all your good work that you're doing. This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, we'll be back next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. 